Hello, everyone. Welcome to day 17 of the 7 a.m. Novelist 50 day writing challenge, first draft edition, uh, in which we're grabbing hold of imperfection. We're trying to wake up in the morning. We're trying to get some writing done together and hopefully get you guys back at your desk to get some work done. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Um, I did have a question on Instagram the other day, and, and someone asked me, How do I listen to all of these uh, morning recordings in a row later? Um, and you can always find them on our Substack channel. And you can also, again, find them on iTunes, Spotify, whatever, as a podcast. And I kind of I like that format because you can go back to the very beginning and just play them forward. So you'll be able to, to listen to them all again um, when we're all finished uh, with the 50-day challenge. And they should be up there for, I don't know, for as long as we all live, maybe. I have no idea. Um, and then I will be continuing doing some sort of something after these 50 days. So look forward to that. Okay. So it's point of view week. We've been talking about the pros and cons of first person and third person limited. And today we talk about what I think is possibly the hardest uh, to handle point of view, which is third person omniscience. And if we have time, we're going to talk about my favorite point of view, which is first person omniscience, and which is a very weird, fun point of view. Okay. Um, and if you need a reminder, a good reminder of some point of view basics, um, I love Adam Sexton's book, Masterclass in Fiction Writing. Um, he really does, I think, the, the best introduction of, of, of different points of views and the points, pros and cons, and a lot of terms we, um, we use come from him. Okay, so we've got two wonderful writers this morning. So Julia first is, is tapping in from California, so we need to give her extra, extra applause for being here this morning. She's a fiction writer, essayist, and playwright whose work has appeared in the Missouri Review, the Boston Globe Magazine, and Best New Voices Collection, a name for a Pershkot Prize. Her plays have been staged at the Boston Center for the Arts, the Electric Theater, and the Boston Playwrights Theater. A winner of artist grants in both playwriting and fiction for the Massachusetts Cultural Council. She has also received awards from the St. Boltoff Foundation, has been a Fulbright Scholar to El Salvador, and has twice been among the winter winners of the Faulkner Wisdom, Wisdom Award for novella. She is currently on faculty for the School of Critical Studies of California Institute of the Arts, Cal Arts in LA. Waiki Wang is the author of Chemistry and Joan is Okay. She is a recipient of the 2018 Penn Hemingway, a Whiting Award, and a National Book Foundation Five Under 35. She earned her MFA from Boston University and her other degrees from Harvard. She is currently living in New York City and she teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia University, and Bernard College. And Waiki, I don't know how you teach at those places when you live in New York, but maybe you're able to do it over Zoom, right? <laughs> Welcome everybody. Welcome there too. So I'm going to get let Waiki get us started about third person omniscience and possibly why you might want to avoid third person omniscience. Waiki, what do you think? Oh, I think I was thinking about third and first because I was just doing workshop last yesterday at Barnard and a story, a student had written a story from the point of view of a ghost. And I actually think that's the best example of the first person omniscient, if I were nice. about it, right? So like the, the character is dead. And I was trying to describe what I was 
and I think I should have just said first person omniscient when I was teaching the class. Um, but that is probably the best example of the first person omniscient because the person knows everything, knows how they died, etc. Um, and I guess another example of that would be like the lovely bones, right? And I, I should have yep. taught that yesterday. But not, you, know. you always um, think of those later. Yeah, I always think of those later. Um, so the third person omniscient is um, something that my students really like to go to at the beginning because I think that's the stuff that they've read for a really long time. It's hmm. the canon. Um, the third person omniscient, though, I have always found pretty hard because of the, it's the God's lens, right? The, the range that you can get into, um, the ability to kind of fill in everything. Um, and as a writer, you know, sometimes, um, like my teachers would say, well, you need to make some choices. You need to select some things. <laughs> um, and I think the third person mission sometimes prevents me from totally selecting things because I'm kind of like, I need to talk about this story and then go into this story. And then, you know, did I, did I give everyone kind of the balanced um, thing? Does everyone get sauce, right? Um, and so I think that's why I've always had trouble with it. Um, and, you know, most of my novels and even just stories are, are sort of on the, the slimmer side in terms of like what I'm trying to write through. So I think for that, the, the third person limited or the first person has always been um, my kind of preferred lens. But I do see a lot of my students go into the third person omniscient. And what usually happens with, you know, a 10 page story is that the first 10 pages is like setting, you know, and then yeah, yeah. nothing happens in that story because they're so, they're trying to get all the characters together. So my general advice for third person for these students and sometimes just for myself is you sort of need to know how big the story is going to be before you kind of set it down, right? Um, generally with a novel with a lot of characters and you say you're going to do third person omniscient, I, I'm almost thinking like 300, 400 pages before, you know, to get kind of like the story there. But if it's, um, but, but then, you know, I think about like the old man in the sea and I think that's third person omniscient right um and that's actually very short right yeah it's very um, very short very it short. also has very few characters very few characters and i, I think I, I read that last year and i was like this is i think third person omniscient, but it's like yeah. not the it's not an the old man yeah, <laughs> and, it's the just one person. and you know the, the the sharks don't really need a perspective so. right so so i think it's like to trim it down if, if you're writing something a little bit you know is try to keep it one or two characters right yeah. um, but then if the cast is larger the book naturally has to grow and so a lot of my students are like writing stories with like five ten people and try to get that in like 12 pages in omniscient and that's just incredibly difficult yeah, the more characters you have in any novel, even if you're not working in omniscience, the more energy you have to put into developing those characters. And you're just giving yourself more work and you're giving the reader more work. And you can certainly do it. I love really complex novels, but just know that you are giving yourself more work. And so it might just take you more time to get that book right. Yes. Um, and also you talked about the God's voice. I think it's interesting that your students are... are moving towards that because again they're they're writing off the canon but you know in the early 1900s writers were really moving away from the omniscient voice because they're very suspicious of that god voice so any voice that would claim to make any sort of statements um uh that would hold themselves over the characters in any way became very very suspect and so i only think we've been moving back to using the omniscience in the last i don't know 20 years maybe last 10 years even it's um, the new generation. They're like, yeah. they know everything. Yeah. 
<laughs> and so, and then that problem of focus, um, you know, yes, in omniscience point of view, you can see into everyone's mind, um, you can, you can hear their thoughts, but should you, and <laughs> the thing is you still need to make some choices and with the, even with the omniscient voice you don't have to go into all the different characters um, and it's actually better to ju just to make those choices and and most of the the omniscient point of view book, books that I read um, they start off very slowly introducing the characters they're not making rapid movements between their internal worlds at the beginning of the book and they only really kind of ramp that up as the book continues and then usually I call it the uh, the kind of musical moment later in the book when you're around the um, um, the crisis or climax moment. So in musicals, you'll hear this, like all everyone's songs all come together and everyone's out on stage and they're like, oh, la, la, and they're all singing the same song all at once. Um, that's the true, really omniscient moment all at the same time. We can't quite do that in our books, but, but having those, those voices and those point of views overlapping really rapidly is much easier, much better once you've taught your reader how to read the book. Um, so let us warm up to that and allow you allow yourself to to have that moment later of the book that really sparks and that that's really kind of a climax moment of all the voices coming together. So really save it a little bit um, for or for other smaller climax moments throughout. Okay, so Julia has been using omniscience quite a lot in her work. Julia, how about you? Um, why yeah, do you well, go for to better it? or worse? I mean. <laughs> You know, I go to it because I think I, you know, I always want to insert myself into a book and it's, you know, for better or worse, probably for worse most, most of the time. Um, but I feel that it can really add an interesting dimension to a book if you bring in omniscience, that the, the God voice. And for me, that God voice is really, you know, again, myself, you know what I mean? <laughs> Because I'm the god of my novel, right? I yeah, mean, we yeah. all the gods of our own novels, right? So, uh, we know the world, right? We've created the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like it's just a chance to kind of assert that sometimes, for you know. And I think, um, you know, I think it's it's fun, and also I think, you know, we live uh, now. I mean, I feel like we, we third person limited. There's a and I say tyranny, but we have a tyranny of like third person limited in a way right I mean we we you know that's what you know we're we, we're taught to go there it's you know easier it's it, you know it, it gets you closer to the characters and all that's true mm -hmm. but I think in the best omniscience the author is refraining like I'm thinking of like the great 19th century novelists like George Eliot or Tolstoy when they do it and again I, I love uh Wykey's point about yeah you got to better be prepared because you you're you're writing a much bigger scope of a novel if you're going to try to pull that off I mean mm -hmm. that's a huge point to consider from from the beginning but I think um you know when it can be done you know they are using it sparingly often you know they're, they're still going to go to a scene and, and you know really wonderful scenes in which you know the, they're focused on characters and you know they're really in a, and usually that's when they when they go to a scene specific moment, it they'll re, you know get it. It'll be from one point of view, right? Like so, you know, say in in Middle March, you know, we'll, we'll we'll get some scope, and then you know we'll get this one scene from Dorothea's point of view, or another scene from Mrs. Miss Codwallader's point of view. So, I mean, some of the minor characters even. But I think when it's for my, for me, the challenge is less that kind of um, 
bringing in that God voice at, at the beginning or at the end to kind of shape your theme and your meaning and to set up something. And mm -hmm. I think that's how I often like to use it. Like, okay, reader, this is what I want you to think about this chapter you know, in some way. And here's what I hope you got from it at the end. So there's a sense of trying to control, which maybe works for me and maybe doesn't. You know, I think there's reason to think it could not work as well. But I also think that, um, you know, when you're, the, the challenge is, you know, determining whose point of view you want to go to in a scene, if you're going to try to use it, right? Like, how do you decide which scene that this, the particular scene should, should be from? And then yeah. I think when it's really done well, you can see them slipping into, like, they'll, they'll have a dominant scene or a point of view, somewhat one character's point of view in the scene, but then slightly occasionally just slip into somebody else's to give you another perspective. And when that's done, it's just, it's just this miracle of like, you know, flash of insight that you get um, in a scene um, that's just so wonderful. But I think in the hands of somebody who's not as competent and who is just starting out, it, it, it's just a challenge that you might not want to give yourself. You know, it can be really, really tough and it can just become, un, you know, unwieldy, uh, you yeah. know, immediately. And, yeah. um, and like you were saying, you know, Michelle, I, I, I agree. And I don't mean to call third person limited a tyranny, but I feel there's, there's a pressure sure to, to write that way sometimes right um, or I first, love calling it or, a tyranny or, or first person or first person right which are really the same I mean I think of first person and third person limited as being very very similar just ones with an I and ones with a with a third person um again that's exaggerating a little bit but they're both have a similar orientation to the text I think as opposed yeah. to omniscience which doesn't has another kind of orientation to the text Right. Um, or to what you're writing. So that, those are my thoughts. But my, so, Waiki, uh, what do you feel about this tyranny? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm I'm propagating it. That's what the third novel is. <laughs> so I'm, you know, part of that group. But I mean, okay, so, you know, what Julia just said was actually um, great about the switch. You know, I think I agree that that is one of the best parts of third person omniscient is the sudden switch into another perspective. Mm -hmm. And that transition, I think, tells you if you're a good writer. Like, I'm always telling my students, a writer is only as good as their transitions, right? And that yeah. oh, that's a great point. Yeah. And, you know, that transition can be anything. But yeah. perspective transition is really good. But I think you have to know almost the whole story to kind of be able to make that sudden choice to change. And at the beginning, when I'm just starting to write or anyone's starting to write, the omniscient feels like I kind of have to have most of the story kind of worked out in a way. Yep. So it could be one of these things that, you know, you start limited, you start first person, and then you realize like the story is actually much bigger and you now know most of the story. Now, then you can kind of go back and sort of take on the omniscient lens. I don't necessarily think it could be something that you know, you decide at the beginning. And I think that's probably why I was, I'm always intimidated by it because at the beginning, I don't know anything, right? So right. I don't know anything. How am I going to be the omniscient one telling people what's happening? Right. Um, but that's a great point about the sudden switch because that is what happens. And, you know, a lot of these books that the scene is dominant and then you get that sudden insight from someone else and then you uh -huh. go back, right? Uh -huh. uh -huh. The audience is cued in on something. Well, Maurice Ruffin, um, Ruffin, I always want to Frenchify his last name. I don't know why. That's my problem. Um, he, um, he says it to, he write his full novel. He'll just like tap it out. And then, and then he kind of puts that away or even tosses it. 
And then he goes back in and writes it again because now he knows it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. that sort of thing, you need to have that kind of broader knowledge of what you're doing in order to handle a mission point of view. Um, and uh, so, so just be prepared to, to do that thing and, and to learn your novel as you go, um, I think is very important. Yeah. Um, but Julia, you've never, um, like, I feel like in your writing, I never lose the characters mm. beneath the omniscient voice. Yeah, I, th- I think, I, I mean, I try, you know, I mean, I, I, again, I tend to use it. And I think for me, sometimes it can, at its worst, it can be a crutch to, to want to, as I said, to want to shape or to prepare the reader for what's to come, you know. Um, and so I think at its worst, I use it that way. I hope at its best, I use it as a way to just, you know, gain an insight or uh, almost a philosophical orientation or emotional orientation towards what's to come in the scene. Um, but I definitely told I I, I, I I do it too much. You know, I definitely, I, I think I can overdo it because I enjoy doing it. It's almost like that point that the part of you that's like a little bit of the essayist coming in, like when you read really good like George Eliot or, or, or Tolstoy, you know, you, there's that whole element. It's another element of the book that doesn't really exist in a lot of modern novels um, in the same way. And I think it's not just about, you know, another character's point of view. There's a, there's a quality of just like overlay um, of like, this is, this is reader, this is the world, you know, this is how I think of the world um, that I've created. And I, and again, and it's funny because sometimes I'll read it and they'll, they'll start in third person uh, omniscience. But then like at the very end of Middlemarch, um, George Eliot slips in um, me, you know, she says this wonderful line, I'm going to paraphrase it pretty badly, but it's like, and the fact that, you know, the things that aren't worse for you and me is because of the millions of, you know, uh, un- unacknowledged lives. I know there's probably a reader out there who's, or somebody a lot going to quote the line, but it's the really famous line at the end of Middlemarch. And it's, you know, it's interesting. It's almost like she, it, she's like giving herself permission there. Okay, you know, yeah, of course it's me writing all of this. Right? <laughs> Who else is going to be writing these long uh, thoughts about like philosophy and uh, my religious beliefs and just how I think of the world. Um, and she may do it again. There may be an I even earlier in the book too, but that's the one that's just really interesting, you know, so you can just almost feel that need to acknowledge. Uh, yeah. You know, I- I'm here. And I-, I kind of love that about omniscience um, that it allows the author to say, yeah, this I'm here, right. This is me. Um, you can also, though, create a separate narrator. Sure. Um, sure so, yeah. so in third omniscience, it's like an authorly you or something. Right? It's an authorly, authorly you. you. <laughs> yeah. So, or you can create an entirely separate um, uh, persona who is who is telling the story. And Robert Boswell uh, writes about this. Robert Boswell, he has a craft book called The Half-Known World that is very, very good. And he has a chapter on omniscience in that book. And I'll write that in the chat and as well as in the show notes. Um, And he talks about the importance of that omniscient voice having a voice and a persona um, Mm -hmm. that's consistent throughout, which is a little different from like the serial third person if you're moving from limited uh, third person narrator to limited third person narrator. Um, And that third person omniscient voice can be intrusive and can cause a lot of problems for the books late, you know, 
um, state uh, assumptions, state opinions about the characters. It could be actually really ornery if you want, and that can be fun. Or that omniscient narrator can be completely neutral and just be setting setting things out, kind of the Chekhov voice. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Is, is Virgin suicide first person omniscient? It is. Yeah. The, it's using the plural we. Yeah. Oh. First I, I person think, plural. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm always thinking yeah. about like for first person omission, other than you know it being like a ghost or someone who's telling the story in the afterlife. When do we really see it from like a living perspective? And I think Virgin Suicide is like a good example of that royal we, right? The, yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and we've got Allison. Um, Damon, who's going to talk about that tomorrow? She's like, "That's my topic tomorrow." Oh, what's 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 the topic? What's the exact? What's the specific? Um, it's the it's the royal uh, the royal oh, we, the royal the we. Yeah, oh, I love that. Or first person uh, plural and, and second person. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, yeah, and that's, so that's, I'll I'll wake up at four for that. That sounds. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, Waiki, we also have. Um, Someone, uh, Tim, who's actually a novel incubator student, he's asking about, can you discuss how transitions can be better um, executed so as uh -huh. not to jar the reader? Uh -huh. um, he's, he's working in third omniscience. He's privileging two main characters. He's really liking what Juliet just said and slipping into other heads, even for a short section. Now, Waiki, you talked about the importance of, of transitions. You're only as good as your transitions. That's a great line. I love, I love that. Me too. I no, but how do you wonderful. how do you get your students to write better transitions? What do you do? Well, sometimes it's um they do it by luck, but sometimes I think they need to write a section and then take the middle and then cut the the beginning. Uh -huh. like, like it's like a sandwich, but they only want the middle because I think mm -hmm. when they try to transition first, they're they're treading a lot of water. So there's treading water, uh -huh. treading water, and then they get to this great line, and I'm like, that's the line you need. Cut all the other crap in front of it, uh -huh. and then cut the crap behind it. Because I think when students are writing, they they want the topic sentence, they want the example, they want the conclusion, right? But like the middle is sort of where kind of the writing is the most interesting when you're, and then so I just say take that and it, just get rid of the other stuff, but. I think when you're first starting to write, having someone tell you to delete like, you know, 75% of a paragraph to preserve this pearl is really hard, but it makes yeah. the, 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 the movement so much better. Yeah. yeah, and I think I remember when I was a student in college and one of our one of my teachers said that he'd cut 800 pages from his novel and I was so indignant. I was like, oh, my God, how can you allow them to do that to you? Da, 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 da. And of course, yeah. I've cut millions of pages. <laughs> Yeah, I think learning to cut is probably the most important thing a writer can learn. <laughs> Absolutely. Just get rid of it and it'll free you. It'll yeah, free I, you so much. And you're cut. right, like students are so resistant to that when you tell them. They just do not want yeah, to. I, I had a student yeah. yesterday who just like yeah. named her character after herself. And I was like, do you feel like you could change the name? She's like, no. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like the sense of not being able to let go of a first paragraph because mm -hmm. they wrote it first you know yeah yeah um and I'm like if you get rid of that paragraph you solve so many questions um and not being able to do that and I just think that that's really important to learn you know and so another thing to watch out with omniscience is lack of focus. So yeah, again, yeah. I think I think Julia you're so successful in your books because you know how to focus and you're able to and, and so a lot of people think about omniscience as actually a, also a narrative distance um, 
question more than a, than a point of view choice. Um, that when you're working omniscience, you're actually writing kind of further above your students, at a, at your students, your, your, your characters at a greater mm -hmm. distance. And then you also though need to sink down into yeah. those characters. Yeah, you can't sustain that. You have to, you, 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 that's not, never the point of it, right? To keep that tone the whole way through I, that I know of. I mean, maybe somebody does it, but I think in the best examples I know of, that tone is used in parts and then always, but I mean, you can't find better scenes than George Eliot's or Tolstoy's, you know, when you really look at their actual scenes when they're constructing stuff, you know, so they're not doing it in those moments either. You know, they're, they're, um, they're going, you know, they're being really concrete and looking at the characters in their world. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I, but it is hard to stay focused, I think, um, mm -hmm. for sure. You know, when you're when you're trying to pull something like that off, I I really read one of the best examples I read um, recently is Namwali Serpels, The Old Drift. Mm. Have you, did you mm -hmm. she's, Yes. Yes. Yeah. She's uh, a, a, a American, but originally from Zambia, I believe. And that, that was just I really just admired the ambition of that book. Um, you know, again, I think it was this there was times when it was the sprawl of characters and and but, you know, she really pulled off, I think. That was from I think it was 2018, um, and it was just this really, really impressive the way she just went for it. I mean, because again, we're I think there's that pressure of being a first time author too. You you just can't get away with stuff right that you can be if you're more established. So yeah. you know, so you can you know to tell somebody, oh yeah, my my debut book is going to be a thousand pager. You know, <laughs> I'm sure you've got agents lining up for that one, right? I mean, you just whoa, right? I mean, so there's that pressure. <laughs> And the title was The Old Drift, right? Yeah. The, the yeah. Drift. yeah. yeah. I, if you want to put the drift. author's name in the in the chat too. Yeah, I, sure, I listened sure. to that over audiobook. I was just yeah. completely swept away. Yeah. In, in the chat, I think we veered away from it. We've still have we still have people in the chat like, yeah, but how do you do those transitions? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that's it's so hard so, to practice. It's like there's no trick. It's um it's figuring out what insight you want to deliver, you know, because what readers read for is insight. But if you don't arrive at the insight, the reader is not going to arrive at that, right? So yes. It's, it's so much practice, right? I mean, I think so. I, I still keep going back to my students. Like my students are sometimes amazed by the end of semester how hard writing is because they think because they know English and they know how to spell and they know how to read, they know how to write. And I'm like, do you say that about a musician? Like that, yeah. <laughs> they listen to music, they enjoy music and they know how to play the piano by like, you know, you would never say that. So it's yeah. like the sense of you, it's like practice and figuring out. Like sometimes I don't know if I'm going to transition into something, but I know something's missing, and then yeah. I think about that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think if you if you can use that persona of the omniscient point of view and kind of follow that persona's psyche in the transitions, yeah, in the transitions, that so that's that what it feels I tend natural. To do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's how I, that's how I tend to when I'm going for that idea. That's I'm using that as a transition. And, and I think I says it can be a crutch, but I could also be really helpful because you know, I'm going, I'm going to that voice in this transition, you know, maybe only for a paragraph, but I'm going there, right? Um. <laughs> and again, using um, the, I've talked about those batons before or the, the um, pivot points that, um, and I talked about this before where like in, in Virginia's, Virginia Woolf's story, I think it was the unwritten novel. Is that the name of the story? Um, where she has a character that's looking at a leaf on a tree and then she transitions to 
the other point of view in that character is also looking at, at a leaf on a tree. And that might sound a little boring why they're just staring at a leaf on a tree, but it's really quite a beautiful story. And the transition is perfect because we have something, a pivot point taking us in between the transitions. Mm. Um, slowing down those transitions earlier on in the novel, I think can also be very, very helpful. And then I would really, if you're going to work in omniscience, I would study other omniscient novels that you love. How do they make those transitions? How quickly do they move between um, the different personas? How do they make the transitions? Where's that coming from? And I always recommend that if there's a particularly brilliant passage where you're seeing a lot of transitions happening, even copying it down by hand uh -huh. so that you really kind of get it inside you what they're doing and just borrowing those little tricks and tools from other writers. And uh -huh. highlight, um, highlight like when the transition happens. So sometimes uh -huh. thinking about on a page, there's, you know, I'm kind of like quantitative. There's like 40% dedicated to this. There's 20% dedicated yeah. to this and then 60% dedicated to this, right? And it's usually like the pivotal, pivotal, yeah, like what, what you know, um, what Michelle is saying, it's like the most pivotal moment, right? Um, like I, I'm thinking of, you know, now you mentioned Virginia Woolf, Sigrid Nunez wrote this book called Myths, which is about Virginia Woolf's pet monkey mm. and it's omniscient, but she alternates between Virginia, her husband and the monkey. And then okay. the moment the monkey dies, she decides to go in five pages in the monkey's perspective. That's, that's yeah. a good transition. You have to do yeah. that because you're preparing the reader for the death, you know? So, yeah. um, and that's a very, actually a very short book. So it's hard yeah. to find short books that are omniscient. Um, it is, um, but Jane in the chat has also mentioned Jennifer Haig's faith. So going back to the idea of the first person omniscience, that's a perfect example of first person omniscience. You have a sister who's telling the story of her brothers mm -hmm. um, and she's making claims about being about, now she's close to the brothers. Um, she's emotionally close to them. She, she tells us that she hears some of what, how the story happened and what happened from the brothers themselves, but she's writing a lot of scenes and re recreating a lot of scenes for us in that book through that first person point of view, scenes that the sister is not in. Mm -hmm. So the sister is basically recreating them as if she knows about them. And so this is a trick you see in Great Gatsby. Um, this is a trick you see in, in a lot of these um, kind of where the, the, the narrator is a writer oftentimes, mm -hmm. um, yeah. or if they are close to the story in another way, they can make some claim on the story. Normally it's a cheat though, a little bit. Um, you see it in um, um, Andrew Sean Greer's uh, novel, Less. Oh yes, uh, yes. Where you have the, the yes. and, and the first person narration is not, who that actually is, is not revealed till later. And so the, the advantage of first person narration, even though a lot of people will resist it if you work in that, but the advantage can be that you know that persona and you know that voice that is telling the book instead of having to create it out of nowhere into a third person point of view, yeah. Um, I'm going to have to there's, let everyone go. Yeah. The go ahead, Waiki. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, but there's also the mystery of who the first person, first person is, right? Exactly. Exactly. Which I think can be fascinating and fun. And that's exactly what Greer does in his book. And other, other books do that too. Um, okay. We could keep talking about this for a very long time, yeah. but I need to get everyone to their writing desk yes. and I need to get, Julie, I think is going to go back to bed. Waiki, yeah, I don't know. Sure. Maybe you're just going to get back to your life. <laughs> 
Everybody start that, start that thousand page. Start that thousand page, page mission book. Right now. Um, oh tomorrow, we're talking about second person in the Royal We with Alison Amond and David uh, Abrams. Um, and I did not put them to two together just because they have the similar names. Um, and again, you can always follow along on the podcast or you could go to our Substack page. You can find our full schedule at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Thank you so, so much, Julian Weike. This is Thank fascinating. You really loved having you on. Thank you. And goodbye, everybody. How you sift for a love in the sand Like a leaf inside the wind And you go where it tells you to go But you never wonder why There isn't nothing here at all